Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 294, Wendigo Lore, Monsters, Myths, and Madness, and Allison and I are here today with one of our favorite paranormal authors, Chad Lewis. Chad, how you doing today? Greetings from the back roads of Wisconsin. <laughs> That's right. Hey, Chad, it's so glad. I'm so glad to hear from you. Yes, I'm so glad we can get together in these weird times and talk about even weirder things. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, that's possible to get any weirder than where we are right now. Chad, it's always, uh, you haven't been in the podcast, I was going to say, in a couple of years. Last time, I think we talked about like weird news headlines or, um, you know, like uh, the strangest, you know, the, the strangest kind of uh, headlines you, you picked out of newspapers. But I think the first time that I heard of you was when you had a a show on like wolf 108 in eau claire yes it was this community radio so it only reached people in the chippewa valley of wisconsin you know maybe a hundred thousand people living there and maybe 10 listening to the show but it was this small little independent station and the best part about it was the owner of this station believed he was a werewolf and that's why he called his station Wolf uh, FM, because he believed he truly was a werewolf. Yes. So he transformed during the full moon? I mean, what was his story? Did he ever invite you out to see his transformation? No, he never did. He was very secretive about it. And some of the stories that he had told over the years was that he had met some weird stranger in a bar like all good stories that happen at a bar, <laughs> but he gave him some cocktail of some sort and told him this would transform him into a werewolf and that if he drank it, he could never return. So he took a few days to contemplate the decision and then drank it. And sure enough, this weird stranger was right. He had turned into a werewolf and this guy was pretty serious about it to the fact that he lived in a pack in his house where he was the alpha, of course, but he had a couple other guys living there and a few women as well. And all the doors were removed on their bedrooms for no privacy because that's the way a pack apparently lives in a house. You know, I didn't I didn't even know that part of the story. We used to go. So um, Wendy and Ben and I in Sunspot, we used to play in Eau Claire fairly frequently, we played homecoming there, and we would do live appearances on The Wolf. And, uh, you know, it was a cool radio studio. We played benefits for the radio station. They had us in rotation. Really, it, it was a fun thing. And I just always knew the guy as Wolf. And then one night, like I think it was after one of the benefit shows or whatever, we were out having a beer. And like Wolf's, one of like Wolf's buddies' name was Highlander. Yes, and, I know Highlander. <laughs> and everybody, everybody had a nickname, Allison. This is at a time when everybody has a nickname. And, um, and we're out one night. He's like... You know, Wolf really thinks he's a wolf. He thinks he can change. And I'm like, what? I'm, I, I just thought it was drunk talk. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, no, he believes it. He met a guy in a bar. <laughs> just like Chad, he told me the story just like Chad did. And I'm like, what? That's awesome. That's the first time I ever heard of, the, of a furry. Also was that oh, same yeah. night. That was that same night. Somebody's like, yeah, he's like a furry, you know, but with wolves. And I'm like, what's, <laughs> what, what's a furry? And it introduced me to this whole wild world. So, uh, Chad, that's <laughs> is my first memory of you is because I know you had your show on The Wolf. I just want to say that I, I really enjoyed your show on The Wolf, Chad. Um, I used to actually listen uh, quite regularly at work back in like, I don't know, 2002. Uh, you know, all the episodes uh, were up on the website. And then so I would just listen to all the shows. Even though he didn't live in Eau Claire. Tiny show in Eau Claire that we did, Terry Fisk and I, as just kind of a lark. It was late at night. Half the callers were bar closing at 2 a.m. and calling us. And the funny thing about the Wolf program is that uh, Wolf told us the only topic we could never discuss was ironically about werewolves. 
<laughs> oh, it's just too close to home. I mean, it must. Maybe we didn't want to give up his secret. So when he actually lost the station and it came, it became a public station, uh, the first guest we had on was obviously Linda Godfrey talking about werewolves. <laughs> right. You just couldn't wait. The ban on lycanthropy was over. Yes. <laughs> the dark days were lifted. <laughs> so move into your latest book, and that is uh, Wendigo, Monsters, Myths, and Madness. Um, I feel like the Wendigo is the kind of creature that I hear about in like movies, or they even mention the Wendigo. We we watched the pet, you know the Pet Cemetery remake a couple weeks ago, like in our Patreon group. Everybody watched Pet Cemetery, and they they bring out the Wendigo and they talk about it a little bit, but they never go back and, and mention anything or go into the real legends or anything. And so I realized that even though I've heard about the Wendigo, movies like uh, Bone Tomahawk bring it up, as in uh, you know that they were you know cannibalistic natives. Um, that eventually birthed the legend of the Wendigo. And, you know, and you hear sometimes like, oh, the Skinwalker Ranch, there's Wendigo roaming around there at that secret place in Utah. Um, You know, it makes me think like, I don't know anything about this creature, really. And so... Yeah, and and maybe, you know, uh, Chad, you can help um, separate uh, the the myth from from the tradition. Uh, You know, there's, there's a hefty Algonquin tradition and it really has nothing to do with like the skinwalkers of the Southwest. It is very Midwestern, but I'll let you talk about it. (laughs) Well, the Wendigo is perhaps the most puzzling, bizarre and terrifying legend I've ever tackled in my 20 plus years of researching folklore. And it's perhaps the oldest folklore legend of a monster in North America and ironically, one of the least known today. And it really began with the First uh, Nation people of uh, Alberta and Canada. And you're talking of the Cree and Ojibwe and various other tribes that believed in this giant monster spirit legend type thing. And that's the puzzling part because the Wendigo, known by many different names and dozens and dozens of spellings of that name, really came in three different forms, which makes it even more puzzling. It could come as a spirit. A shaman could direct one to um, curse your area, drive away games so you would starve, bring you bad health. But it could also possess you and slowly turn you into a Wendigo. But then it could also appear as a giant cannibalistic flesh and blood monster. So it was really similar to a caterpillar becoming a butterfly that they're the same creature. They're just in different states. So that's what makes the Wendigo so puzzling is when you're talking about it, you can talk about it in spirit form, flesh and blood, or even a possession form. So does the Wendigo become almost like an, an all purpose monster uh, for, for the people? Cause you know, I, I think about um, like the gin, and uh, the gin, there's so many varieties and there's like, you know, uh, and you can blame them for anything. You know, they can have a, one gin is messing around with your house. The other gin is stuck in a lamp kind of thing. You know, to the Wendigo, um, is it always a monster? Are they always something scary? Are they like an all purpose monster for the native peoples or um, is it something more specific? It was certainly a catch-all that if game was running short during the season, it was because a Wendigo scared it off or a shaman sent a Wendigo to scare it off. If someone became depressed or they became ill, they were obviously turning Wendigo and possessed by the Wendigo. If a stranger showed up at night to your encampment, you didn't know them, they were a Wendigo. So it really was a catch-all. And these, these stories were going with the tribes there, but also we can't forget that a lot of the early pioneers, the missionaries, the fur traders, they brought a lot of their legends with them of werewolves and vampires, and it really melded into the Wendigo lore. So they added stuff to it, and it became this legend that brewed for hundreds of years where it was the most terrifying thing you ever wanted to encounter or not want to encounter, 
even so much that many cultures were afraid to even say its name because if you said its name, it would put you on its radar and then it could find you. It was like luring out, calling a dog to come after you. That's what it was like blowing a, a dog whistle that this thing could then find you. Oh, that's like the bye-bye man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that's that's kind of unusual because uh, in all the stories I've heard, the, the Wendigo is really a winter creature. And in um, the traditions, the woodland traditions of the Midwest, um, it was okay to talk a- about a lot of creatures um, and supernatural beings during winter when the snow had fallen uh, because um, all of those things were asleep. Uh, and so you could tell some of the stories that you couldn't tell when there was no snow on the ground and, and the uh, ground was not frozen over. So when the ground was frozen, when there was snow, you could tell certain stories uh, and you wouldn't you wouldn't incur the wrath of, of certain supernatural beings. But but the Wendigo seemed to be, you know, uh, specifically talked about during winter in that extreme time of scarcity. Uh, at least that's what I've found uh, in my research. Uh, wh- what have you found in your research, Tad? One of the classic telltale symptoms of a Wendigo is that food scarcity, that starvation, that not having enough to eat, and that will cause somebody to turn Wendigo, to all of a sudden be possessed by the Wendigo where they may become depressed. They'll become silent. They don't want to hunt. They won't want to interact. And then they'll start to view their loved ones as tasty food like beavers and moose. And then they'll have yeah. this insatiable hunger for human flesh. And that's all thought to be brought on by famine and cold weather. But I think so much of the Windigo lore has been lost forever uh, because people weren't writing it down or recording it hundreds of years ago. So there's a lot of different beliefs on when you and when you cannot talk about the Wendigo. Some say you talk about it in the summer because it's not there. Others say in the winter because it's already out and you won't do yourself harm. Other beliefs are that you can only talk about it after the first snowfall of the season. So there's a lot of competing theories and most people just hedge their bets by not speaking its name ever. You know, what do you mean? Like they just don't talk about it for an hour on a podcast? Um, <laughs> well, I think we're safe. It's Summer's coming. You, I hope. <laughs> I hope summer comes. I know it just snowed yesterday, but summer is coming. I feel it. What's interesting, though, um, I, I, one extra thing, though, that I, I think is interesting, we're looking for like a, a, a cultural connection here. And I know uh, our Patreon, uh, Chuck Martin, he had asked, he's like, well, make sure you ask about if the stories of the Wendigo go beyond North America. Like if there's any, you know, if there's other cultures that may have similar types of creatures. And when you said a stranger shows up at the camp in the middle of the night, the first thing that that made me think about was the stories of the Popabawa from Zanzibar. Because when they had their Popabawa scare in the mid-1990s, and they were thinking that, you know, the, the people in the villages were thinking that the Popabawa, who's an evil kind of spirit, was out. And we've talked to Dr. Martin Walsh about this, uh, who was there at the time and had to investigate. He said that a lot of the, you know, if you would have a stranger come to your village late at night, um, you would lock them up. Or they actually shot at somebody um, because they thought it, it was the Popabawa coming in a human form, showing up in the middle of the night. And so that was the first, I think, cross-cultural connection that I could think of, that fear of the stranger being someone in the form, you know, being an evil monster in the form of a man uh, showing up in the middle of the night. Uh, because, of course, if you're, you know, what is, why is that person wandering around? What do they want? What could, what could possibly need in the middle of the night that couldn't wait till morning to come and scare the pants off you? So you can see immediately there's going to be a fear reaction and a, a natural suspicion for somebody showing up when everybody else should be sleeping. Well, the best advice I could have given to someone in the 16, 17, 1800s is never travel at night. <laughs> because you're right. Any suspicion was if they didn't know you, most likely they were so terrified that they would shoot first and ask questions later by the fact that 
these beliefs were that anybody traveling at night had to have some type of sinister motive. But these beliefs really were a North American belief from far Western Canada all the way over to Labrador, from the Rockies uh, in the U.S., the, the Great Lakes region, as we all know, is plentiful in Wendigo stories. I recently did a program up near Grand Marais, Minnesota, way up by the Canadian border. Hey. And after the program, a woman came up to me uh, in her 80s and said that as a young girl, she grew up in the area near Canada. Her father used to tell her and all the other neighbor children playing in the village that if they ever heard a kettle being banged in the woods, they needed to run home as fast as they could because that meant the Wendigo was coming and banging its kettle. (laughs) Because it wants to eat you. (laughs) Yes, it wants to put you in the kettle. And here she was 70 plus years later. She said she had never heard the kettle, but that story stuck with her in Minnesota for all those years because it was so terrifying. Now, was she a, uh, was she a First Nations person or was she just, you know, was it just, a, uh, you know, somebody who's, gro- I mean, growing up obviously in the early 20th century near the Canadian border in northern, you know, far northern Minnesota is going to, she's going to be living the, um, oh, why can't I think of her name? The Little House on the Prairie Dream. Yeah, she oh, was a pioneer. Uh, her parents were pioneers in the area. She was not, you know, native or first nation blood in her, but this, that's the thing is these stories, they, they may start out in a geographic location. They may start out with a one type or one culture, but like everything they spread, they morph, they progress. And the Wendigo stories from the 16, 1700s are much different than the ones we have today, as you would Uh, assume because legends like everything, they just change. So the original Wendigo stories, or maybe even the original Wendigo creatures are much different than the ones we have today. Well, let's get into that. Um, I I just want to add, you know, one more note that uh, for 13 years, I taught at a, a Native American school and a large a contingent of the population there was Ojibwe. And so even the urban Ojibwe um, had knowledge of the Wendigo. And uh, there are um, children's book, native children's uh, book authors that um, have uh, dedicated books and uh, sections of their books um, to a lengthy discussion of the, the Wendigo, like uh a um, very popular writer, Joseph Bruchak, has a, a series called uh, Skeleton Man. Um, and there's a couple of books in that series. And it's about, um, it's about a young girl who is, who is entrapped by, a, a, by a, a Wendigo, essentially, and how that's accomplished and how she escapes. So that's, that's very interesting. And then um, also uh, Louise Louise uh, Eldritch um, has uh, a book called the the I believe I believe that's the author's name has a book called the Birch Bark House and they uh, that's a coming of age a series uh, about a little girl growing up Ojibwe um, in the 1700s I believe in the Midwest and of course they discuss the Wendigo in there so it's an important part of the Ojibwe culture and so much so that uh, at the school I remember one assembly where the kids uh, came in to uh, talk with uh, to to hear a talk by elders who was telling them an elder was telling them about the Wendigo and actually drew a connection between Jeffrey Dahmer and the Wendigo and he asserted that Jeffrey Dahmer was a Wendigo. And so that was That's just... That's scary, but awesome. That was just interesting <laughs> news. You know, you're just sitting there um, at a school assembly and and uh, that comes out. So um, it, it just gives you an idea of the cult, different cultural interpretations of events that uh, certain groups of people have. So, um, but, you know, the Wendigo is just really terrifying. You know, there were stories um, that I've heard about about a creature that they were actually people just like you and me who were just driven insane by the scarcity during winter and 
you know, not only ate their families, but started eating themselves, like ate their own lips off. This is how insatiable their hunger became. So, I I mean, it's such a terrifying creature. I want to see how the stories have changed throughout the years, Chad. Well, yes, the original stories were that the Wendigo, when it was in its human flesh type, uh, flesh and bone, something you could possibly kill if you knew the right procedures, um, you know, they ranged from anywhere from 8 to 30 feet or as big as they wanted to get. They're very thin, very gaunt. Um, Many times their lips and mouth are missing because they've chewed off their own flesh and their their hunger, um, bite marks all over their body. And that was the flesh and blood type creature of, of the Wendigo. Oftentimes people thought it was a shapeshifter. It was immune to the elements. Cold could not hurt it. Uh, warmth did not hurt it unless it was fire. You know, it could swim underwater, didn't need to breathe. It would move in a straight line because why wouldn't you if nothing's in your way that you can't move through? But these stories progress where even today there are many cultures who believe that you should not build a snowman or a snowwoman in your yard because there's a tendency of it coming to life as a Wendigo, much like the old belief of if you build a scarecrow, you have to take it down or burn it before Halloween. Otherwise, it will come to life. Wait, I never heard that. I I, I was building snow snowmen with my daughter this winter. Uh, I'm not going to do that again. Well, it was the same with it's the cold. It's the same with the belief that uh, for years it was told to kids do not eat ice because then you might be susceptible to turn to a Wendigo because the ice got into your body and it may take over your heart. One of the telltale hallmarks of a Wendigo is it's a heart that is encased in ice, and that's how you defeat it, by melting the heart or cutting it out are just two of the ways you can defeat it. But it's all, again, as Allison alluded to earlier, that cold, that starvation, the ice, the hunger— all of that equates into the Wendigo. You know, I think that's um, interesting there too, the idea of the, the heart encased in ice. That makes me think about Dante's Inferno because um, when you get to the center, like the last level of hell or whatever, you know, like Judas is there encased in ice. You know, we think hell is supposed to be full of fire. You know, hell is supposed to be um, hot and burning but then the most, uh, you know, it's, it's like when people say, you know, you get to wintertime and how many times have your friends said, like when you're freezing in the car, waiting for it to heat up, how many times you heard somebody say like, oh my God, I would rather be hot in the summer than cold in the winter. Oh, it's so bad. I'm freezing right now. And I like, like trying to make a deal. Like, you know, I'd so much rather be hot than cold. And this idea that the most evil creation, the Wendigo, the most evil thing around, um, it's heart is uh is frozen and i just you know when you think about how people think about evil um in different cultures um there's you know one thing that's scarier than fire and that's i mean even when you you go to the game of thrones the white walkers you know what's the the dragons are the good guys who are the bad guys it's the ice it's the cold it's the death coming for you because winter is the season of it and what's interesting about the, the Wendigo as well is that when people were killed for being suspected to be a Wendigo or turning Wendigo or going Wendigo, as they often called it, many times witnesses reported that they would find ice along the backbone of the uh, person or that their heart really had ice surrounding it or other parts of their body had formed ice. Some saying you could even hear it crunching as the person moved. But then when they died, they would believe they found literally ice in there. And whether we think these people were misidentifying some medical disorder or they were hallucinating, they, by all accounts, actually did find ice in these bodies. So that's the puzzling part of what do we make of that were these seemingly good witnesses found ice in people. Wow. That I mean that is so you you're saying that there are some accounts of perhaps even physical evidence of 
of these icing overs. Um, can you tell us like a particular story um, that that you know of from that time period? Yes. One uh, gentleman who was uh, killed for being a Wendigo, he was turning Wendigo. And one of the, I think the most, uh, uh, perhaps the most touted story about the Wendigo in terms of sociologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, anthropologists who look at this from an academic level they see Wendigo psychosis or the belief someone's turning Wendigo as nothing more than a scapegoat for those looking to get rid of their sick, their ill, their weak, or another mouth to feed. And it was gave them a, a free pass to kill these people and then alleviate their own blame by saying they were going Wendigo. We were doing it to save the village because they would have killed everybody. But there are so many accounts of people trying to cure this person, going way out of their way for weeks when this person's telling the whole village, I'm going to kill and eat you, that they tie these people up and try to heal them. And on one account, a gentleman was unable to be healed. So what they did is they ended up getting together and after many days of trying to revive this person, they ended up uh, stabbing him and smashing him with an axe, but that wasn't enough. They ended up chopping off his head. Uh, that wasn't enough. So they drove stakes through the body. And when that wasn't enough, they tied the body down to make sure it couldn't come back to life because they truly thought it would. And that's when they noticed that there was ice in the body, uh, through one of the stab wounds that they had, uh, done on this gentleman. So what they did was poured hot liquid, uh, what was known as tallow. It was a beef fat back then. And it was one of the ways you could cure or kill a Wendigo, but they poured this tallow along with a uh, hot tea in the hole that the ax made to defrost the ice. And when they looked in there, they saw that the heart was encased with the ice. And that's when they poured the liquid in and eventually they burn the body just to be absolutely sure. So, I mean, number one, that's the idea that you you know you find this this uh, person with ice in their veins or whatever. Like you always make the joke, like yeah, she's got ice in her veins. Well, this guy did, and he wants to eat you. Um, when I'm thinking about stories about the Wendigo, it's this idea of of scarcity. It's going back to this this thought that in the winter, when there's no food and there's no place to get any food, that you'll eventually turn to eating your friends and, like you said, Allison, eating yourself. And so, Chad, when you were doing your research for the Wendigo lore book, what would you say was the earliest story you were able to find um, before, uh, you know, maybe it had been um, adapted by European settlers, what was the what was the earliest one you were able to find um, from the native legends? Well, written accounts came in the 1800s when the the white uh, pioneers, the fur traders, the missionaries, all the immigrants coming over from Europe, um, they were the ones who wrote these stories down. Until then. It was an oral tradition, and we have stories in the mid-1800s of people saying that nobody knows the origin of the Wendigo because it's been around so long, nobody knows when it actually began, and that's very difficult. Imagine having hundreds of years of this legend where only it was passed down orally, never connected to paper, and it wasn't until those uh, missionaries started writing about the stories that we got a glimpse. And that's where all the various names and the various spellings come in because people wrote down what they heard and it depended on the uh, spelling ability of whoever was documenting the story. So when I mentioned earlier that so much of the Wendigo lore, uh, my colleague uh, and co-author Kevin Nelson and I we really believed a lot of it has been lost to history, that we're just getting these little pieces and snippets. And Kevin likes to say that it's almost like supernatural uh, Indiana Jones work, that you're uh, like an archaeologist, that you're trying to take pieces and snippets of this legend 
and see how they would have fit into the greater legend because so many of it's lost. When we were doing research on the Wendigo, we dig up these stories about it like that it would often sweat blood and that you could see the blood in its footprints as it ran because it was sweating. But we only found one or two stories of that. Nowhere else was that ever mentioned. It's the same thing with how to kill it. There's some uh, stories out there that you could sacrifice dogs to ward off the Wendigo. But there were only two instances we found of that in all the legends that had never been heard of before. So I think it's a lot of detective work when trying to put these together. And again, I'm just really saddened by how much there must have been at the time that simply has gone to history. So, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about here, when we talk about the early stories of the Wendigo and like, you know, it it develops as a symbol for the worst of humanity when there is a shortage of food. You know, what, like the movie Ravenous, um, or, you know, you think about those, uh, those soccer players in the, in the Andes, um, when they had to, you know, eat the dead bodies from the, from the airplane, uh, in order to be able to survive. And so, or, I mean, those, obviously the horrible stories of, uh, during, um, when Stalin was not letting the food into the Ukraine. And then there's horror stories of parents eating their children and stuff. And so you think of the Wendigo maybe as a symbol or, um, you know, some kind of, um, it's a trope because it, it's the worst of humanity when, when the chips are down, when you can't find food, when you have to survive, you go to your most basis, basic instinct and then you end up eating people you love or eating a human, the, the worst crime you can do you know, killing another person and eating them. And so the Wendigo becomes the symbol of that. But then you're like, okay, so that's a symbol. That's, it's like telling kids you got to behave or Santa Claus isn't going to bring you a a toy at Christmas. Um, But then you get stories where people actually think they encountered a Wendigo. So, you know, in your book and in your research, what do you think was the story that when you were looking for, uh, looking through it and, and reading the accounts, you were like, okay, well, maybe this is more than a story. Maybe more, this is more than a symbol. Um, this might be something that actually has some kind of supernatural bent. Well, I think a lot of researchers look at the Wendigo legend and believe it was only done out of hunger. That That's the only reason people went cannibal and ate one another is out of no other choice. And for a lot of times that was true, but there were other times it wasn't. And perhaps if any of your listeners even know a tiny bit about the Wendigo, they probably know the story of a gentleman named Swift Runner. It's perhaps the most infamous alleged Wendigo uh, cases uh, ever. And Swift Runner was a, a Cree Indian living up in Alberta, Canada, north of Edmonton. And this was in the winter of uh, 1878 into 1879. And uh, as Allison and you both probably know, during the summer, the First Nation people would have big gatherings where they would all live among one another because food was plentiful and they was more of a community. But when winter settled in, you would often go with your family, your core family, and spread out to spread out the game and have a better chance to survive only feeding 10 people instead of 85, 90. So Swift Runner went off with his family, which consisted of his wife, their six children, his mother, and his brother. And in the beginning, game was plentiful. He shot a few moose, a few deer. And as the winter went on, less and less game, they became more and more hungry. And he ended up killing his... um, uh, wife and the children and eating them. And many scholars look at this case of Swift Runner and say that he did it because obviously to survive. There was no other way. But when spring came along and all the game came back, according to Swift Runner, one of his boys, the last remaining, was still alive. And he actually did kill and consume him when other food was available. And he believed he was possessed by the Wendigo. He called it the devil or the evil spirit of that time. 
And Swift Runner ended up killing five of it in eating five of his children along with his um, wife and his brother and mother probably uh, starved or froze along with his oldest son. But that's the story most people know because Swift Runner came back to St. Albert in uh, Alberta in the spring of that year, claiming this terrible starvation. His entire family died. But researchers and the law at the time saw that he was this strapping man. He was over 200 pounds, six foot three. He didn't look like he was starving for the winter. He looked better than he ever had. So they went back to his winter encampment, and that's when they found all the bones scattered around, and they gathered up what they could and took him to Fort Saskatchewan, where he was tried and convicted of uh, being a cannibal and a monstrous murderer. Wow. God, I'd never heard the story of Swift Runner before, so uh, that guy has officially disturbed me. Yeah, it is disturbing. And my question is, from what you said there, Chad, about um, in the springtime, he still had one of them left, one of his sons, and he still killed and ate him. And so that makes me think that that he was gradually working through his family. So I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like a quick death. It sounds like uh, it sounds like it might have been more like you know it's coming. You know, he's he's working through his family and he's keeping you captive there. There's nowhere you can go anyway, uh, and so you're kept captive by your demented father, and perhaps, uh, as in some Wendigo stories, he's eating you gradually, maybe an arm here, then a leg, then the other arm. I mean, uh, what evidence do you have, uh, uh, or you know, what what is in the official documents about the actual progression of the murders? Yes, and that's the fascinating part because Swift Runner, uh, on his trial or at his trial, he confessed and gave a, a detailed account of what happened. And you're right that it wasn't where he just killed all of his family on the same day. It was a gradual thing where uh, he would kill one and hide and eat it, and then he killed another. But that last son of his not only had to travel with his father as they were killing one by one the children and his mother, but he also consumed the meat of his siblings. And for me, the most terrifying part is not Swift Runner himself, but the idea that his young son had to know that he would be next as less and less of his family were alive. And just that knowing, but yet you're in the middle of nowhere you're still malnourished from a terrible winter. You're tired. You don't know where you're going. You're nine years old. What are you going to do? Run away from your father in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night? So for me, the most terrifying and the most troubling when I was there in the woods where Swift Runner committed these gruesome acts was trying to put myself in the shoes of that young boy and that here's the most trusted person in the world, your own parent is this sinister monster coming after you and the dread he must have felt felt going to sleep every night or just walking around. It's just hard to believe. You know, first of all, Swift Runner is one sick bastard, number one. Um, number two, when you're, when you're talking about the horror that that child had to experience, like he's being groomed to become the next Wendigo. And I kind of wanted to talk about that for a second because you were talking about how the shaman could maybe, uh, the shaman could uh, like conjure a Wendigo. Uh, and, and so there was a couple of different, like you said, that the uh, the caterpillar eventually becomes a butterfly. So what's the process um, going from a human, like let's say, you know, consuming your brother's flesh, uh, your mother's flesh, to eventually becoming this tormented, I mean, I guess no longer cannibalistic because it's a monster. So you just go from a human committing cannibalism to a monster. What are some of the steps for that caterpillar to eventually become an evil butterfly? Yes. What, what's fascinating is it usually didn't happen overnight. And what it was is it was a, a, a battle of, I call it a battle of sanity and soul. 
And the fact that the, the Wendigo would start out by taking people and there were certain signs. One is that all of a sudden you just weren't acting like yourself, that you'd get sick or you may not want to interact with the rest of the, the tribe or, you, you know, the encampment. And you would uh, be depressed. Oftentimes you'd call out in groaning or pain or making odd noises. Sometimes you'd have hallucinations, but mostly it would be abrupt personality changes. Uh, maybe you were depressed, apathy and the like. You would isolate yourself. You might go into the woods by yourself. And that was a sure sign that the Wendigo was taking you over. And that's when you would often be killed at that moment because it was believed that if the process went any farther, further, that you would become a Wendigo. And according to legend, that is, if it's not stopped, you fully become a Wendigo and you resort to cannibalism. Uh, well, I guess it wouldn't even be cannibalism at that time because you'd no longer be human. But once you consumed human flesh, it was said there was no turning back. There was no cure but death. Only death could alleviate your suffering. So it often began with what we would think of as mental illness or possibly even physical illness. And let's not forget these same communities that were battling Wendigo and people turning Wendigo were the same ones battling measles, smallpox, influenza, and all kinds of infectious diseases that would put forth some of these same symptoms that turning Wendigo. Depression, being weak, not wanting to move, crawling out in pains, uh, shouting, all those are uh, signs of a physical illness. So the lines between when you turned Wendigo and when you didn't, when you needed to be killed and when you didn't, were very thin lines. And, and so, you know, I when I think about a lot of Native American lore, you know, when you think about the water panther, it's the water panther versus the thunderbird. You know, there are um, there are opposites. There is someone working against humanity, and there's somebody. There's a you know a spirit or a creature on humanity's side. Does the Wendigo have an enemy, a natural enemy? Does the Wendigo have a opposite? Is there an angel to its demon? There's not a specific creature that you could call on. You could call on your spirit animals if you were or your spirit guides. Uh, if you were a, a shaman, you could go into a shaking tent and perform a ritual where you would call forth the Wendigo or whoever was creating the Wendigo, and you would battle them in the spirit realm, and you could kill the Wendigo that way as well. Uh, the Wendigo could be killed in many different manners. One, obviously, was a powerful shaman, who was powerful enough to do it. And that would be people like uh, Jack Fiddler, who was thought to be the last greatest Wendigo killer in history. But you could also kill it in normal means. And what I mean by that is anyone going Wendigo could have been killed by basic means you could kill an individual. Uh, they were often strangled because that was the easiest. Sometimes they were shot. Obviously. Uh, yeah, strangling is the easiest. Yeah, well, I mean, being the easiest in the fact that you don't need a weapon, <laughs> you don't need to. I mean, it's a personal thing, but oftentimes. And not a lot of cleanup. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> they would then burn the body because if you didn't, the ice of the Wendigo would come back. If any part of the body was not burned completely to ash, that and then the ashes scattered, that the, that person could come back as a Wendigo. But. What was fascinating is that when somebody was suspected of turning Wendigo and they had to be killed, oftentimes that process fell to the family of the person, of the victim, because that would eliminate a lot of retaliatory killings. That if somebody was a friend of mine and I was killed, they might go after the person that killed me. But if it was a family member that had done it, it would cut down on the chance someone would retaliate. So many times people would have to kill their own family members and put them out of their misery. And oftentimes the most puzzling part of the Wendigo aspect was that many people who feared they were turning Wendigo, they begged to be killed. They asked to be killed so that they did not want to turn Wendigo. They really feared 
that they were going to turn and consume all of their family. So they begged to be killed. And oftentimes people went through with that request. Oh, man. Well, that, that would be obviously difficult unless, Allison, you you needed me to kill you. I probably could do it. <laughs> You'd be okay with that. <laughs> I probably, probably – just let me know. It's been a, it's a long time coming. <laughs> just let me know. Um, so, you know, Chad, in your research for the book, like you said, you, you walked the same woods as Swift Runner. And so just wondering, like, how did you do research on the book? Who did you talk to? Like, where did you start and where did you – end up having to go to get all the research you needed to be able to come up with a tome on Wendigo lore? Well, this book is something that was planned and unplanned for well over a decade. And I first started researching the Wendigo um, when I was in graduate school studying psychology and learning about Wendigo psychosis. And it wasn't long after that that back in the early 2000s, I went up way up to northern Minnesota to a town called Ross by War Road and uh, Roseau up by the Canadian border because there was a journal of a man, a white pioneer in the 1800s named Jake Nelson, who wrote about um, the Wendigo visiting a place called Indian Village, as it was called. And he reported every time that this creature would come there, it was a harbinger of death that the people believed if you saw it, much like hearing or seeing the Irish Banshee, it meant you or someone you knew was going to die. And sure enough, people died after the Wendigo showed up in the village. And that was in the early 2000s when I first was on site at these places. And then shortly after, I made my first expedition into Canada. And for the next 20 plus years, I've been traveling Canada and the U.S. looking at these Wendigo stories. A few years back with my colleagues, Noah Voss and Kevin Nelson, we actually did a winter camping expedition on uh, Lake Windigo in Minnesota. It's this lake um, in a lake. So it's a lake and an island amongst another lake, which is an oddity in itself. Right. And they believe that the lake is the Windigo. Getting back to the water panther, or the water spirits, many believe the Windigo comes from the water. And they believed that the Wendigo used the lake as its kettle, that it would drown people and bring them to their watery grave and spend eternity with the Wendigo. So we camped on that expedition there. And a lot of these places I had to see firsthand. It's one thing being from Wisconsin. When you talk about a heavily forested area, people in Wisconsin immediately know what that's like. But when I was in Alberta, in Canada, far western uh, Canada and the location where Swift Runner was, it was a different type of forest, a much thicker, unruly, and older forest than what I was even used to. And they I call that the first growth, right? The, the first growth forest, which means it's never been logged. Yeah, these these stories of these these forests that you think you know, but when you're walking around, it's unlike anything you've ever experienced. And I'm a firm believer in visiting places of the folklore to really get a sense not only of the atmosphere and the the layout of the land, but talking to the people because these legends, they exist among the people that spread them and the people that live with them and their histories intertwined with the locations in which they originate. So, Going to these places, talking to people, modern day people about stories that are 400 years old and getting their take on it. I think that's very important. I know a lot of people do research through the Internet and they never visit these places. And that's fine if that's the way they like to do it. But for me, I have to be there to really experience the folklore. Well, I'm a, I'm 100 percent with you there, Chad, because like obviously right now um, we can't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. um, but that's, I mean, the thing is, uh, part of why I think we all are interested in this and, um, why we're all looking for the, the weird in the world. Uh, we want to go there. We want to see what those people, you know, we, we want to experience what those people experienced. And if we can't experience it, I mean, obviously we don't have a Wendigo experience, even though that this Wendigo experience might happen in my house pretty soon. Um, it uh we want to 
feel what those people felt. Or, and if we can't do that, we want to get to the place where they felt it so at least we can come close to kind of understanding it better and having an understanding of these strange paranormal and supernatural experiences. And the best way to get that is to stand where they stood. And um, I, I think that uh, I think you're preaching to the converted when it comes to the best way to investigate is to go to the damn place yourself. Yeah, get your boots on the ground. Yeah, it gives you a great idea when you're standing somewhere like Allison, when you hit all the Chicago Mothman alleged sighting sites. I mean, talk about that of just being able to say, wait a minute, they couldn't have seen it. There's a building here. Yeah, yeah, you got to you got to be where uh, it all went down uh, or supposedly all went down to really see what what is is apparent there and you know it's something that can help you understand uh you know where the witness is coming from but it can also you know help out any inconsistencies when you're really there and not just being an armchair explorer but it's it's a it's also though um like journalism or any kind of thing is that if you want to relate the story in the best way you can the best way to relate the story is to go to the place and give a little bit of your own interpretation of what the place is like. And then you say, okay, and here's what the claim was, you know, because you're not just, um, you're not just relating a story. You're going somewhere and you're trying to, uh, interpret it through a way that educates people that, um, makes people feel like they were there themselves. And, it's hard for an experiencer to write like that because an experiencer isn't a professional author. Like we've all here, you know, all of us here have been paid to write about something. And right. someone that has a paranormal experience could be just like, oh my God, I saw a UFO, it was crazy. And like, that's awesome. Yeah. But you, like, it needs to go, come to the filter of someone who, um, you know, it needs to come to that filter so we can portray it in, in the best possible way. And so uh, I think that, Chad, it's awesome that you get to go to these places. And it's funny that you're talking about Western Alberta as this place, the first growth forest. Yeah, old growth forest, yeah, is an incredible experience that maybe a lot of us haven't partaken in yet. And and when we were talking to a couple weeks ago we talked to Ken Walker uh, and he's from Western Alberta and he's a taxidermist that has Bigfoot experiences and he was the one who who created a Bigfoot um you know he created like this fake Bigfoot for uh these taxidermy conventions or whatever and he goes through this entire process of doing it but the way he talks about Western Alberta when he's like yeah they haven't logged it we don't know what's out there, this area, you know, like you going to that place and feeling it and having that feeling of this is an alien place to me. Um, does, is, does that help feel like maybe this is a place where old, it's, a, it's almost a Neil Gaiman American gods thing. Like I'm here in a place where old spirits could be living. Well, I think what was beneficial when I was walking the woods uh, with Kevin Nelson is that we were saying, we could imagine the Wendigo living here today. Imagine 300 <laughs> years ago. I mean, we have all the modern conveniences of a, a vehicle and protection and food and lodging and warmth, but we were still a little thrown off. And imagine people living 300 years ago. And that's the beauty of it. And when you walk to a place and you can immediately say, yeah, I see why people do not like this place. But then imagine what it was like 100, 200 years ago. It must have just been an in incredibly weird time to live. Well, uh, Chad, I, I got to thank you for your time today. It's, it's always nice to hear your stories. It's always nice to, uh, to, to read your books. And I'm a big fan of your books. And I want to encourage everybody out there to check out uh, Wendigo Lore on Amazon. There's me links in the show notes, othersidepodcast.com slash 294. Chad, where's the website where people can find you when they want to go find? Because the thing is also, in addition to your writing, you're appearing at libraries in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Iowa all the time. And once we're obviously, we can all go back outside. Um, where's the best place they can see you live? Well, I think easiest place to find me is chadlewisresearch.com. And once things get back to normal, if you find the weirdest legend you can think of, most likely that's where you'll find me. 
<laughs> um, you know, one last question, Chad, about the book. Um, how would you say, like you said, you've been working on this and you've gone to these places over the past decades. And uh, I've never heard about the, did you say called a Wendigo psychosis? Is that an actual yes. thing? That's not an actual thing in the DSM-5 or whatever, is it? No. Well, Wendigo psychosis and those of your listeners, uh, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Basically, the Bible of mental illness um, that uh, health professionals use. And it's not specifically listed in any of the uh, DSMs over the years, but it is put under a category of a culture-bound syndrome. Because it's believed that Wendigo psychosis, and in the book, I think you'll see that I lean very heavily against this, that they believed it was only in a certain area where this belief was, one little culture where it was bound to that culture and nowhere else. But in the book, you'll see that it was all over Canada. It was on the eastern edge of the United States. It was the Great Lakes area. But yes, it is considered a culture-bound syndrome, but it does not have its own place in the um, DSM. And most uh, characterize it as, you know, this flesh-eating monster manifesting in symptoms of cannibalism. And they believe it's a mental illness. And we did an, an entire chapter, go, chapter on Wendigo psychosis. Uh, with its origin back in the 1930s all the way up to today. Awesome. Well, I, I'm old enough to have gone to psych classes where I have a DSM-4, like somewhere ah. in the house here. So it's like, I'm like, I'm going to go find that right away. Um, the other thing, Chad, is, you know, every time you put something out, and I know this is a creative person and Allison knows this, every time you put something out, you're changed a little bit at the end, especially if it's a project that takes a year and any kind of a book is going to take months or a year to put together unless you're just cranking them out for like Amazon, Kindle, whatever. But you, you make um, physical books for people to read and they take a long time to put together. Would you, you know, thinking of the creative process, is there anything that has changed in your perspective or ideas or beliefs from when you started the first word of this book to when you printed it. Just wondering if, if this book has changed any of your personal beliefs at all in how you approach investigation or how you believe about the world. I really fell in starting this out, both Kevin and I, we stuttered quite a bit with it of stopping it, thinking it was too big, too complex, too puzzling. And then we would start up again on it. And then we would pause and say, do we really need another book by two Caucasian men talking about a First Nation legend? Right. And, um, and then we really came to the conclusion that over the 400 years, it's been intertwined with so many other cultures um, that it's become part of the Great Lakes legend as well, where we all grew up. But I think what what terrified me about this research and what changed me about it was the fact that I thought I had been to a lot of places where gruesome things had been done by people, individuals, whether it was visiting Ed Gein's farm or a, a little place down in Cambridge, Illinois, where a woman murdered her seven children, you know, serial killers, gangsters, suicides, untimely deaths. I thought I'd been to all of it, but nothing prepared me for visiting Swift Runners Forest. And it was to the point where Kevin and I stayed in right in that area for many nights. And it was uh, for many, many weeks when we got back here in Wisconsin, I would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, nightmares about Swift Runner. And that's something that had never happened to me before. And I think it just illustrates that to me, the scariest monsters and the most gruesome things that have been done are humans for me. And I think that's what I took away from this book, that this unspeakable terror that they felt. I tasted a tiny, tiny bit of it, and it was enough for me to say I didn't need to go through what they went through 400 years ago. Allison, any last questions for Chad? Well, um, I'm just going to suggest that everybody get the book. I can't wait to oh, yeah. to um, you know take a look at all the stories in there uh, because, you know, like you said, you've been working on it for so many years. Uh, and it is a, a subject that, you know, is very dark, but, you know, it probably looking at it illuminates these dark corners of 
of humanity and, you know, helps us to learn a little bit more about ourselves, uh, perhaps. So I would encourage everybody to get the book. Well, I think this is my 25th book on the supernatural. And without a doubt for me, I think it's the one that's going to define my contribution, if any, to this field. That, wow. Yeah, I think this is going to be, if anyone ever remembers me in 50 years, it'll probably be for the Windigo book and not anything else. Um, I, I think it's, it's that much of a project we put into this over the last 15 years that I think this probably will define my research in the field, if anything does. Holy cow. Fantastic. Well, you guys can find uh, links to buy the book at othersidepodcast.com slash 294. You can check out and get the full story. And also, um, you can, you know, obviously Hollywood and TV, they love to bring up these legends. Um, and Chad's gone. and He's done the research to find the real legends for you. And so it's a good chance to get a little check on uh, what we get from the Dream Factory. Um, it's really interesting to look at the First Nations and also the way that um, these legends have seeped into culture, the American culture, over the past 300 years. So, Chad, we really appreciate your time today, and I just want to wish you the best of luck. Thanks, and keep an eye out. Thank you, Chad. The Wendigo is more than just the winter spirit of desperate hunger. It's a monster that feeds on greed the human capacity for gluttony and the desire that you will never have enough. The Wendigo, like George Romero's zombies, is never satisfied. Its craving is never satiated. It's an eerily thin, gaunt beast who grows larger with every human it devours. But it's still not enough. Once you break the taboo and taste the flesh, you descend into madness and you will never satisfy that hunger. So that's our inspiration for this week's Sunspot song, The Hunger of the Damned. I can hear it's cold In the scream of the cold I can feel it crawl An infection in my soul A little voice deep inside You'd rather eat than die Find a way to justify As the hunger takes hold
you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Yes, thank you for listening. And thank you to our Patreon community members for making it possible for us to produce the show and continue making cool things, new songs, new episodes, videos, and all of the other content that we love to create for you. Now, I'm excited to welcome some new members into our community, and those people are Jeremiah and Matt. Welcome aboard, and we're looking forward to having you in the discussion, both in our private Facebook group and our monthly hangouts. And finally, I want to acknowledge a couple of special patrons that are pledging us at a level where they get this executive producer credit at the end of each episode. Dr. Ned... You've been with us all along, and thank you so much for all of your incredible support. We love you. And now I would like to welcome to the same pledge level, Jeremiah. Thank you so much for your support, JJ. We really appreciate it. And you're in excellent company with Dr. Ned. If you would like to become a member of the Sunspot and see you on the Other Side Patreon community, just visit othersidepodcast.com slash donate, and you can see all the different levels available for pledging. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. It's the ice, it's the cold, it's the death coming for you because winter is the season of it.